Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. Leftists are used to making the argument that we need to push for left politics despite the fact that left candidates aren't always popular. But in 2020, things are different because not only is Bernie Sanders the candidate with the strongest left platform, as well as the only candidate with a vision of social and political change coming from the bottom up rather than the top down, he's also the most electable candidate according to a wide range of metrics. You should not let anybody fool you otherwise. I spoke with Megan Day about all this. She's the co-author with Jacobin contributing editor Matt Karp of the article, Bernie is the candidate who can beat Trump. Here's why in Jacobin. Matt and his wife just had a baby, so we let him off the hook for this episode. Megan is a staff writer at Jacobin. She also wrote a book with me that will be out soon, which we mentioned in the beginning of the conversation. And you can pre-order that book on Amazon if you so desire. Okay, here's me and Megan Day. Hello, Megan. Hi, Micah. What you been up to lately? Been doing anything? Mm, yes. I have been writing a book with you. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. There's a book that we wrote together. Yeah, yeah. That we're we almost wrote it. done with. Yeah, we're almost done with it. We're putting the word, uh, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's at this point. Yes. Bigger than Bernie. How we go from the Sanders campaign to democratic socialism out from Verso Books in April 2020. 420, baby. It's, I noticed that yesterday that it is uh, coming out in 420. Very nice. So you have an article in Jacobin from last month with Matt Carp called Bernie is the candidate who can beat Trump. Here's why. And before we get into the stuff of the article itself, I was thinking before this conversation about this whole idea of electability. And electability has, for my entire life, been a concept that is used almost exclusively by the right, whether it's uh, most of the, the right wing of the Democratic Party, they bring it up in order to say why we can't have nice things, basically, why we can't have real left politics. They often say, oh, it would be nice, but unfortunately, the American people won't go for this stuff. And in thinking about having a discussion with you about electability, I was thinking, well, am I you know, we're making this argument now from the left for Bernie. And I was thinking, am I a hypocrite now because I've resisted this talk of electability this whole time coming from these right-wing Democrats? Uh, but I was thinking about it and realized that if you're running a candidate, you want the candidate to be elected. You want the candidate to be electable. And there's sort of two pieces of this that are important. I mean, one, the standard right wing of the Democratic Party argument about electability has been proven false multiple times, certainly in 2016, when the whole reason why we had to endorse Hillary Clinton was because she was the one who could defeat Donald Trump. And obviously that did not happen. She'd lost the election. Uh, and that's the case for Democrats up and down the board from the presidency on down to dog catcher and how the party has been decimated at the local state and federal levels around the country. Um, but two. Trump, Bernie Sanders like is actually the one <laughs> to defeat Donald Trump and if we want to defeat Donald Trump you know the guy who ha happens to have the best politics also according to basically all metrics at this point is the electable candidate right yeah I mean we're at this funny 
juncture in history where the Electability Act argument actually is working in our favor. And I think that it would be not wise for us to neglect that opportunity to seize it and sort of reclaim reclaim it. Um, but we have to constantly be reminding people that the main reason that we want Bernie Sanders to be the nominee is not just that he can beat Donald Trump. It's also that if he were to be president, he would be able to use that office to hopefully fundamentally transform some things about American society. But, you know, lot, lots of Democrats want to beat Donald Trump. He's a widely reviled figure on the left-ish side of the aisle. And it so happens that Bernie Sanders is actually the best position to beat him. And that's not a coincidence. I mean, it's kind of related to the former point that I made about fundamentally transforming society. Because Bernie Sanders actually has the potential to reach out to key constituent elements of the populace that don't typically vote or that are, you know, that tend to like oscillate between parties or oscillate between voting and not voting. Um, and to be able to bring those people into the political process and excite them and to get them to vote for him and not vote for Donald Trump, which means that he is going to be able to actually pull off higher margins against Trump than his competitors who are for the most part offering business as usual politics, right? And to be clear, just for the future, because obviously we're we're making the electable electability argument now. We have that on our side at this point, but you know, in twenty years we could go back to like nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, which were the period where the you know the country was turning to the right in a lot of ways, and Democrats said that we need to run towards the center in order to win elections, and. The whole reason that Bernie is able to run now and be electable is because he did not buy those electability arguments about running to the center in the 80s and the 90s and 2000s and, and up until the present. Uh, so I just want to be clear for listeners that uh, this is not, you know, the electability in itself is not the sole calculus upon which you you should make political considerations. That's how Tony Blair, you know, rose to prominence in the Labor Party. That's how Bill Clinton rose to prominence in the in the Democratic Party. Uh, there has to be both uh, electability as well as you know basic moral political principles uh, that are fighting for good and decent things. Right. I mean, another way to put it is that if our ideas were not popular, they would still be right and we would still stand by them. It just so happens at this moment that our ideas are both popular and right and we get, get the opportunity to make the case for both. And again, this is not a coincidence. This is actually you know, rooted in like recent history. You know, Since the 2008 recession, there's been a growing anti-establishment mood or sentiment in the populace. And so people are looking to shake things up and people are acutely aware of inequality. I saw something came out, some sort of survey that showed that more than half of Americans no longer think that if you work hard, that you'll live a good life. <laughs> I mean, there's just an opportunity for us to be able to like reach out and present our politics to people in a way that there hasn't always been right in the 1980s with the you know Reagan was president of the United States there was Thatcher in the UK Thatcher's famous line there is no alternative had really seeped into the consciousness of the you know liberal capitalist democratic west and so it wasn't always that possible to articulate our politics which were correct in a way that was popular 
But things have changed, and now our politics are both correct and popular, and we should proceed on all fronts. We are correct on all fronts. You heard it here. (laughs) All right, so let's go through the argument. Just lay out your your basic case that you and Matt Karp make in this this article about uh, what is the sort of Bernie electability case. Why is Bernie the candidate who can defeat Donald Trump? So first we wanted to write this. We wanted to write this article for a specific reason, which is that Bernie has the highest favorability among Democratic contenders for the primary, among Democrats. So that would indicate, right, that he should be number one in all of the polls, if that's the case, right? People like him the most. Now, he has really strong polling, but his polling is falling a little bit short of his favorability. And the only real way to explain that differential is that People have been persuaded by this idea that you constantly hear articulated in the mainstream media that, well, I like Bernie Sanders, but Bernie's too far left and people, other people won't like him. People, other people won't go for that stuff. And I myself have to behave like a pundit. I can't, you know, vote on the basis of my own uh, preferences. I need to try to guess what other people's preferences might be and then triangulate around that. Um, So you start to see that even though Bernie's favorability is through the roof, his polling numbers are just pretty strong. Like he should be he should be far and away the front runner. And instead, he's sort of tied for front runner status with Joe Biden right now. Um, So we wanted to write this argument to try to basically throttle people into realizing that, in fact, they need to vote on the basis of their own preference and trust that other people will do the same so that we can elect so that we can, the Democratic Party can nominate someone who is broadly well-liked so that that person can then go on to defeat Donald Trump, right? So that's the reason that we wrote it to begin with. And then, of course, once we established that, you know, we need to dispense with the sort of folk wisdom about moderate politicians being more electable, we then went on in the, in the article to try to make the case for why exactly Bernie is extremely well positioned to defeat Donald Trump. And I'm happy to run through that the granular argument for you, if you like. Yeah, I mean, the first point or one of the first points that you make is just the basic point that Donald Trump is very beatable right now. He's very vulnerable. There's something about the pure shock of Donald Trump's 2016 victory that has convinced Democrats that while he needs to go, he is somehow extraordinarily powerful. Like he has uh, obscure, he's endowed with sort of like obscure magical powers. Otherwise, how could he have possibly squeaked through against Hillary Clinton, right? You know, and he's also been sort of impervious to attack. I mean, you look at impeachment and the fact that it's, you know, not necessarily going anywhere. There's a lot of treading water. Um, And you can see that, you know, Democrats think of Donald Trump as being um, like a juggernaut of sorts. It's important to take a step back and see that Donald Trump's actually pretty unpopular. His approval rating is pretty low for an incumbent. And like I said before, there's a lot of passion among the people who would like to get him out of office. Um, He is eminently beatable. The question is, who are we going to send up who can actually knock him down? Um, The reason it's important to point this out is because a lot of the like, electability arguments that you hear in favor of someone like Joe Biden have to do are resting on the premise that Donald Trump is going to be extraordinarily difficult to beat. And so you need someone as close to the center as possible to pull the suburban moderate always voters who sort of toggle between parties as though that was the main constituency worth fighting over. Right. Um, 
so we just need to debunk that step by step. First, we can, Donald Trump is, is not, he is defeatable. And second, that's not the main constituency that we should be going after in order to get it done. Right. This is the like Chuck Schumer argument about losing working class voters for every working class voter you lose in a blue collar area, you'll gain two in suburban Philadelphia or whatever. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like that's the argument that we hear put forward. And you can see how it bleeds over into arguments in favor of someone like Joe Biden. Um, And so we wanted to make the case that actually that's not where you should be looking to pick up votes. So what are the three groups that you all lay out in the article of of who are the ones that you need to appeal to and why Bernie is the one who best appeals to those three groups? In order, the the three groups that we need to appeal to are Democrats and independents who backed Obama twice before turning to Trump, which everyone knows that's a real thing that exists, uh, typically in the Rust Belt, deindustrialized areas in the Midwest. Um, and we know that there were a lot of them and that they proved to be at least partially decisive in 2016. And then second, an also decisive block of voters in 2016 are people who voted for Obama once or twice who just declined to vote in 2016. They just did not like either of the candidates on offer. And then the third group is of course, the largest group of all and the most neglected group of all, which is Americans who don't typically vote at all. If you were to get even like a marginal bump from each of these groups, you would have an opportunity to defeat Donald Trump pretty handily. But in order to get a bump from each of these groups, you need to nominate someone like Bernie Sanders, who is putting forward a political vision that appeals to the diverse working class. And because all of these groups, what they have in common is that they're a working class. And in, and especially when it comes to people who don't vote at all, we're talking about a mul- the multiracial working class, right? So let's go through them bit by bit. In the um, 206 counties that went for Obama in 2008 and 2012, and then they went for Trump in 2016, Sanders has out-fundraised all of his competitors by a long shot. And of course, Bernie Sanders has been out-fundraising everybody by a long shot everywhere, but these are, these are places where he's racked up you know, three times as many donations as his closest competitors, who would be Biden and Warren and Buttigieg, Buttigieg sort of clustered down there at the bottom. Um, this is a high, a very high volume of individual small dollar donations in the Obama-Trump counties. And it makes sense, right? Because Bernie Sanders' political message is targeted to people whose lives are getting harder as elites and CEOs are growing richer. And that really captures the experience of many working class people who are living in the deindustrialized Rust Belt in the Midwest, abandoned by right, like corporations who have left in search of cheaper labor and higher profits elsewhere, um, you know, in other regions of the country or in other countries altogether, leaving them behind sort of jobless and leaving their communities to decay. So those people were attracted to Barack Obama because he was the change candidate. And then they were attracted to Donald Trump because he was the change candidate. And the only way to win them back from Donald Trump is to throw up another change candidate in the hopes that enough of those people have realized that Trump was, in fact, a false change candidate, that they're willing to swing back across the aisle and vote for someone like Bernie Sanders. And like I said, we're looking at the donation numbers. We know that he has strong support in these places already. And every single person who has you know, donated to the Bernie Sanders campaign is also someone who's going to put a sign in their lawn, is someone who's going to talk to their friends and their coworkers, their union members, people in their church congregations about the Bernie Sanders campaign. 
Um, so we, it's really important if we want to actually flip some of those people back to look at, you know, where the support is already concentrated. That's, a, that's around Bernie Sanders. It's not around middle class Joe. It's not around Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, even though Buttigieg is from the Midwest, right? It's, it's around Bernie Sanders right now. Kills me that Pete Buttigieg is from the Midwest, that he gets to claim my native region. Ugh. <laughs> uh, so second, you had Obama voters who didn't vote in 2016. Right. So that it, there are a lot more of those people than we usually hear discussed. Um, something like 1.7 million people across the country went to vote and they stood in line and they made their way to the polls and they cast ballots and they left president blank. Like they voted for people who are running for mayor or whatever, and they just left president completely blank. And then Pew Research, this is not normal. That's not a normal number. That's an extraordinarily high number, right? And uh, Pew Research Center always does um, polling of people who, you know, didn't vote or declined to, declined to vote for president. And in the past, when they have asked people why did you not cast a vote for president, usually it's been like eight or maybe max like fifteen percent of people have said I don't like the candidates. There are other reasons that people give, like I was busy or I couldn't get off work. In this election, it, it almost doubled. It was twenty something percent, twenty five, twenty seven percent of people reported that the reason that they didn't cast a vote for president is because they did not like the candidates, and a lot of these. People, if you look at the distribution of where people declined to vote and where there was a significant drop in votes for president are in the exact same places as where we see the Obama Trump voters. They're in the deindustrialized Rust Belt and Midwest. Right. So it's basically it's a similar population, possibly a higher proportion of people of color who just could not bring themselves to vote for Donald Trump, even though they didn't like Hillary Clinton for many of the same reasons as their perhaps co-workers or neighbors who did go and vote for Donald Trump. So it, for very similar reasons, Bernie Sanders would be the one to reach out to them. You cite in the article this crazy stat about what is it, 75,000 voters in Michigan who did exactly what you just mentioned, who voted but didn't register a, a presidential preference, and Trump only won the state by 10,000. And I think there were similar numbers in Wisconsin. I remember a New York Times story that came out shortly after the 2016 election that was specifically about African-American voters in Wisconsin who were disgusted by both candidates for president and were thus not voting for either one of them which really you know shows as a as a lie this idea that we can somehow automatically magically expect black voters to just come to the polls every election and vote uh, democratically you know that black voters like everyone else uh, don't like it when they feel like both candidates are full of shit and they won't vote for one or at least large numbers of them won't vote for one who they feel like is uh, full of shit and people like to talk a lot about oh bernie sanders doesn't have black voter support which is of course not true young black voters back bernie sanders overwhelmingly as well as young latino voters there needs to be an active reason for voters of all kinds to vote for a presidential candidate. Otherwise, they will literally do things like vote and leave the presidential slot blank. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that it's important to also tease out a subtle distinction that the mainstream media misses, which is that when black people vote, they reliably vote Democrat. But it's you can't just rely on black people to vote. 
right? Because you can't rely on anybody to vote if they're not excited. And you can't just take black people's votes for granted. And that's something that I think that the Democratic Party has been doing for a very long time. And I think that there was a um, a spike in um, black voter turnout uh, in the two Obama elections. But that, you know, fell off. It tapered off in 2016 and for, for pretty good reason. And so we will see. I also think that you, when you pointed out age, that's actually really important because I think that older um Older black people are more likely to vote consistently, right? And young black people, it's a little bit more like young white people. It's just sort of like, am I excited? Am, do I have a reason to turn out to the polls, right? Um, and so that actually leads me into my third category, which is sometimes voters or never voters. This is actually the most important category to appeal to when it comes to defeating Donald Trump. This is what Mike Davis called a long time ago the largest political party in the united states is the party of the non-voters right right and over 40 percent of the country typically don't vote in presidential elections that's astonishing i mean we have extremely dismal voter turnout in the united states compared to peer nations you know nations with similar similar profiles wealth profiles power profiles etc so uh 40 40 of the country doesn't vote 60 percent of the country does what this means, actually, is that if you were to win just a little slice of non-voters, because the proportions are what they are, that could be completely decisive. So you don't have to win the whole thing. You don't have to win the whole 40% of people who don't vote. You've got to win th- even 3 4 5%, right, is going to actually tip the election in your favor. So we're talking, it's the, the most important thing, perhaps, and I think it's worth talking about the Obama-Trump voters and the Obama voters who didn't vote at all. But really, this is the most important group that we need to be talking about if we're going to defeat Donald Trump. And it's the one that's been most neglected by the Democratic Party. Uh, and the reason the Democratic Party has neglected it is that because in order to excite uh, people who don't typically vote, what you have to do is present a positive vision that is bold and ambitious and that speaks specifically to the interests of young people, people of color, and more broadly, the working class. And there are reasons why the Democratic Party doesn't want to present such a vision or run on such a vision. And that has to do with its alliance to the capitalist class whose interests are sort of diametrically opposed, right? So Bernie Sanders um, is a shoo-in, right? Because Bernie Sanders is talking about Medicare for all. He's talking about tuition-free college. Um, He's talking about um, ending mass incarceration. He's talking about putting a moratorium on deportations. I mean, these are issues that are going to really speak. They're positive, they're ambitious, and they're really going to speak to the communities that when you look at the demographic breakdown are the least likely to vote. So, uh, you know, young people, non-white people and working class people. Bernie is distinctly popular already with all of these groups. And it's that suggests that he's by far our best shot to mobilize the vast, as Matt and I called it, the slumbering army in a general election against Donald Trump. And like I said, just a few percentage points uh, from that group is going to push us over the top. But nobody should be under any illusion that somebody like Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg is going to excite people who do not typically vote. They are going to stay home like they normally do anecdotally i was knocking doors for bernie in clinton iowa this past weekend and i was given some working class turf mostly working class voters and i was knocking on doors talking to these people and a lot of the people who i talked to just said openly oh i don't vote 
and there was no sense of shame. They were just like, oh, you like Pepsi, I like Coke. Like, you vote, I don't vote. And I was talking to them about what their issues were, and it was what you might expect. It was people who uh, cared a lot about uh, Medicare and Medicaid, people who had uh, crushing medical debt or just struggled with the healthcare system generally, people who had student loan debt. And none of them associated, I, I realized in my as the conversation went on with them, none of them associated those problems with voting for the Democratic Party. They're not like, ah, yes, I am struggling with medical debt, therefore I vote Democrat. They were just like, yeah, this is the problem that I have. And and (laughs) implicitly, they didn't seem to see any political solution one way or the other to those things. And so I would talk to these people about Bernie, and I would say this is what he's fighting for. This is what he's fought for his whole life. This is what's at the center of his presidential campaign. And people were like shocked. Again, these are people who are normal people who are not uh, particularly, you know, they're not extremely online, extremely, you know, following every blow by blow of the presidential campaign like you and I do. And they had no idea that this person was making the argument for this stuff. And once they heard about that, I got a number of people to commit to caucusing for Bernie when they found out that that was what he was about. Um, And so it speaks exactly to your point of he can engage these people, excite people who are not normally going to the polls to vote for anybody. Yeah, and I think that I want to reiterate or underscore the point that we're not going to reverse the trend of America having extremely bad voter turnout in a single election. We're not promising that Bernie Sanders is going to excite the entire non-voting working class to come out en masse and vote for him. But I just know anecdotally based on my experience canvassing in working class neighborhoods as well, Micah, that uh, there's no chance, there's absolutely no chance that someone like Joe Biden is going to in any way convince someone who just thinks of themselves as a non-voter to change their self-perception to someone who is a voter. There's just no reason for them to do that, right? But Bernie Sanders is doing something very different, which is that the proposals that he is running on, the platform that he's running on, it has implications for very intimate parts of working class people's real lives, genuine struggles that they deal with every day. The Democratic Party for a very long time has been running on platforms that are extraordinarily disconnected from working class people's lives, articulated in a very uh, you know, policy wonkish technocratic way that's designed to appeal to the reliable democratic electorate who is college educated and thinks of politics as an identity or as a subculture or as a hobby. And that's who they're sort of trying. And the people in the past who've run, who've been the sort of darlings of the Democratic Party for the last few decades have primarily been running to win over those people and to win over the news media who they are expecting to broadcast their message right to everybody else. Bernie does not give a shit about them. Yeah, he doesn't give a shit about any of that. He's trying to speak directly to working class people. Do you have medical debt? Do you worry about calling an ambulance when you think that you may have actually injured yourself because you are afraid of the cost of an ambulance ride? Do you have crushing student loan debt that's preventing you from designing your life in a way that actually feels fulfilling to you? Right. These are the questions that he's directly asking working class people. And the answer, right, for lots of working class people is yes, yes and yes. So this is a this is a non-mediated conversation between a candidate and an ordinary working class person who may or may not 
think of themselves as a voter, right? So that is the, there's a potential in there to actually bring more working. If, if he can actually broadcast that message to people, if he can actually get through to people, and of course the media is doing their best to suppress Bernie Sanders, right? There's sort of Bernie media blackout. Uh, can, Did you, were you, you saw this poll from your own uh, Bay Area yeah. where Bernie was, <laughs> can you describe that for people yeah. who didn't see it? It was like, it was like a, a who are you planning to vote for? It was like... Um, it was a local NBC station. Yeah, it was Bay like... Area, right? by, yeah, exactly. And it was like... Uh, or ABC, I think. And it was like uh, Biden, like 20-something percent, like Warren in the teens, like Buttigieg, like pretty low, Yang, pretty low, other, 35% or something like that. So so they put Bernie Sanders under other, and then, of course, he won. He's the front runner in the poll, but they, they put him under the name other. Uh, so yeah, the, we're getting the media blackout seems to be dissipating a little bit. To some extent, it's being replaced by <laughs> ruthless, baseless attacks on Bernie Sanders, right? But you know, obviously, the media is going to try to not pump out Bernie's message to uh, millions of ordinary working class people who don't necessarily consider themselves uh, voters, regular voters. However. If Bernie is nominated, they're not going to be able to get away with that anymore because the news media, by design, has to cover the general election. And the general election is between only two candidates. So they can't actually get away with suppressing Bernie Sanders. He's going to be on television every single day. And millions and millions more people than are paying attention right now are going to be paying attention to the general election. And I think that you will see that some people will get excited. Some working class non-voters will get excited about Bernie Sanders. They will see him on whatever news channel happens to be on in their in their workplace or in the living room, right? And, and they'll come out to vote. You said that the other category in that poll was all for Bernie, but I don't know what you're talking about. You're in the Bay Area. That you don't know how much of that percentage was like the K Hive. They're like Kamala or Die people who are like want to write in Kamala. Yeah, Kamala write in. <laughs> you got to be careful yeah. of that. Could be. So you, you're kind of getting at something that you also talk about in the in the a piece that's worth talking about at length. I think, which is uh, uh, you you've been talking mostly, and most of the article is about these hard numbers about polls of the uh, 2008 and 2012 Obama voters who voted for Trump in 2016 who didn't vote or, or whoever, uh, people who didn't vote at all. Uh, but there's also just the general uh, question of what a election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden would look like versus what an election between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders would look like. I think you're working on a piece on, about that uh, for Jackman right now, which will probably be up by the time people hear this uh, episode. And you uh, write in the uh, – you, you and Matt both game out some ways that this could uh, play out. Uh, you know, uh, be, Let me quote from your article. Because Bernie's politics emphasize class conflict, a Trump-Sanders contest promises to be not a mere clash of values and norms – of milieus and manners, but a referendum on the role of the rich and the rest in our society, with each contender representing different sides of the divide. And you have a, a hypothetical line from Bernie where you say, I did not have a father. Should, should I do the Bernie impersonation here? I'm not sure. <laughs> I did not have a father who gave me millions of dollars to build luxury skyscrapers, casinos, and country clubs. I did not come from a family that gave me a $200,000 allowance every year, beginning at the age of three. Uh, and uh, unlike Donald Trump, who shut down the government and left 800,000 federal employees without income to pay their bills, I know what it's like to be in a family that lives paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and you can see how that would play out uh, in a in a general election. Um, 
you know, Biden does not come from astronomical wealth in the same way that Trump does, but the, he's wide open for all kinds of attacks on that front. Uh, Bernie Sanders uh, is not. So the, the person who runs against Donald Trump, whatever their sort of general political orientation is, is going to shape the way that the election actually pans out. So the question is, what will this election be a referendum on? And with Bernie Sanders, I mean, regardless of his background, though I do think that, that those are some stunning quotes where he's sort of contrasting his background to Trump's, but regardless of his background, his general political orientation is such that there's no question that the problem with Trump that he would highlight is that Trump is a plutocrat who is looking out for other members of the ruling class at the expense of the vast majority of people and using racism and xenophobia and sexism and so on to divide and distract the vast majority of people so that they don't come together to overthrow him and people like him. That's going to be Bernie Sanders' entire message. We know that because Bernie's been consistent in saying that exact same thing for the last 40 years. The question is, what kind of what kind of election would we be looking at if it were someone like Joe Biden? I mean, when we talk about milieus and manners, what I mean by that is that, you know, there are members of the Democratic Party, certainly liberal pundits and, you know, hashtag resistance figures, whose main problem with Donald Trump, to some extent, appears to be that he is bucking sort of traditional norms of, of like civility and um, political behavior. They're sort of embarrassed by him. He's like extremely cringe to them. And that seems to be their, their biggest problem, right? It's the thing that they focus on. And so you'll hear them talk all the time about like, you know, Donald Trump is threatening world peace with like a 3 a.m. tweet. And like, you know, I guess with Joe Biden, the contrast that you get is that like Joe Biden goes to sleep at 4.30 p.m. So you'll never get a 3 a.m. tweet from him. <laughs> right. I mean, this is not really a political distinction. <laughs> and then, of course, Donald Trump will, will probably politicize the distinction somewhat between himself and uh, Joe Biden disingenuously by saying, you know, Joe Biden's, you know, corrupt. And, you know, Hunter Biden, this and Ukrainian oil company, that. Right. And that'll be kind of true. So it'll be hard for Joe Biden to shoot back and say, no, you're the corrupt one. I mean, this is not really a generative political discussion, actually. This is a really boring slap fight and not like a, a real political difference that we sort of need to tease out as a country in order to progress to the point where we can prevent the ascendance of another Trump-like figure. And we saw how this played out in 2016, right? Like Trump is just this cartoonish, you know, garish uh, portrait of of greed and opulence, and and you know has no compunctions about screwing over basically everyone he's ever come in contact with. We we know he represents kind of the worst of American capitalism, but when he ran, he was up against Hillary Clinton, who is not the worst of the worst, the just true scum of humanity in the way that Donald Trump is, but has a very long track record of pandering to the rich, hanging out with the rich, carrying out the riches, carrying the rich's water for them. And so she gave him more than enough to muddy the waters so much that so many people would just say, ah, they're both the same. And, and and people don't understand that. Like certainly, liberal pundits don't seem to understand that. That they're like, look at Trump. Look at how awful he is. He's obviously so 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 much worse than a Hillary Clinton or than a Joe Biden or whatever. Uh, but but average people don't parse things that way. They're just like they hear that 
Trump is corrupt, they hear that Clinton is corrupt, or they hear that Biden's corrupt, and they're like, ah, well, they're all the same. And then they throw up their hands, and then we end up with you know huge numbers of people staying home. It's really hard to do that against Bernie Sanders, a man who seems to like only own one winter coat and like i saw a picture of him the other day in which he appears to be wearing like a potato sack on his head as a winter hat like this is not a guy who you can accuse of uh you know there's very little chance that those those waters are going to get muddied in that way there's going to be a very clear distinction between him and trump and that's what we need in order for trump to lose this election yeah, I think that's right. You know, I actually do think that um, just based on what I've seen swirling around in the discourse, that if it were Bernie versus Trump, Trump would actually attempt to cast Bernie as a hypocrite for owning three houses. I've been noticing that this has been this chorus has been growing louder from the sort of MAGA corner of the Internet as they start to become worried that actually Bernie Sanders will be their opposition in the general election. Well, liberals, but, too, though. Liberals have said the same. thing. Oh, yeah. Liberals love to say that. I mean, it's but it's comical. I mean, it's just comical because like especially if it's Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. I mean, like having like, you know, a permanent residence in D.C. where he works and a permanent residence in Vermont, which he represents, and then like a lake house on Lake Champlain. And he's like in his late 70s. Like, come on, like, let the man have a lake house. Come on. Hey, also, have you seen grandkids. the pictures, the pictures of the lake house? Yeah, it looks like, like a wood paneled. Yeah, <laughs> like, it looks like a been summer cabin. 1973. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it looks like a summer camp is what I meant to say. Um so, you know, I, I think that even if they try that, that's all they'll have is like, well, you're a hypocrite because you made like a million dollars like selling a book that people liked. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is a literal billionaire and built his fortune on, you know, racial discrimination in housing and just like like constant abuse and exploitation of workers and swindling people and making horrible backroom deals that screwed people over and meanwhile you know was like abusive to women in ways that were egregious and sort of constantly in your face he was not ashamed whatsoever you know so it's just i don't think i think that even if they try to undermine bernie sanders with the one thing they have on him I, I don't think it'll work. The other thing, presumably, that they could pull out is like, I mean, they could red bait him, right? They're either going to call him a hypocrite or they're going to red bait him or both. But the thing about red baiting Bernie is that Bernie has very intelligently chosen what he could be. We don't know what's in his heart. Maybe he's, you know, a die hard communist, right? But the truth is that he's chosen, no matter what's in his heart, he's chosen a short-term political program that's extraordinarily popular. So if Donald Trump goes, oh, you crazy socialist Bernie Sanders, he could just say, do you think it's crazy that every person should have health care? Do you think it's crazy that everyone should have a roof over their head? Do you think that the idea that everybody should be able to pursue an education that allows them to build a life of dignity is crazy? I mean, it's just going to backfire. On Donald Trump, I think, in a way that we can't really expect for any of the other candidates and the distinctions that will be made that Donald Trump will intentionally try to make with them. You guys have a great section in the article that I had never heard of before that gives us some indication of what Bernie campaigning against Trump might actually look like. We're so used to right now primary Bernie and primary Bernie is one that is uh, incredibly nice uh, to all of his opponents. He's friends with everybody. He's friends with Warren, even when she's stabbing him in the back or, or the front, <laughs> as the case may have been. Uh, and so we're like, not sure what exactly a, 
uh, campaign against Trump would look like because that's how Bernie has always handled things within the Democratic Party, even though he's an independent. He's not really like declared war on the right wing of the Democratic Party in the same way. But he faced in 2006 a challenge from a Republican senator for his Senate seat. Can you talk a little bit about what that campaign looked like and what that would indicate for how he would campaign against Trump? Right. Yeah. The point that we wanted to make is that despite the fact that anytime Bernie is even lightly, mildly critical of another of a primary opponent, you know, the mainstream media says that he's being extremely aggressive and he's going negative. And he's going on the attack and so on and so forth. The truth is that Bernie's actually been pretty gentle with his primary opponents so far. Um, and, you know, he's uh, typically pretty polite, like he tries to tease out political distinctions. But overall, it's not like he's doing like intense oppo research and pumping it out into the universe. Right. Um, but he says explicitly we... that that's not how he does politics. Right. Right. Exactly. And but we do know that if when he in the past has run against a very wealthy Republican opponent, he has taken the gloves off. So in 2006, he ran against some guy named Rich Tarrant, who was a self-funded mega millionaire of some kind who wanted to take Bernie Sanders' seat. And, um, you know, Bernie went on the offensive against him. He started calling him Richie Rich, and he activated (laughs) his base of donors. He sort of lambasted his opponent's effort to buy the election, and he talked about it as a symptom of the rigged economy. And not only did he win, but he absolutely blasted this guy out of the water. He won by 33 points. So this is the kind of unbridled oppositional energy that you would see Bernie Sanders bring to a race against Donald Trump that I actually don't think that we've seen since he burst onto the national scene in a big way in like 2015. Um, we we should expect to see him, if he is the nominee, To re- we should expect to see him to really crank up the heat, I think. And it could be pretty exciting. In fact, as we say in the article, we think it would probably be the... Um, most high-profile spectacle of class conflict in modern American electoral history. And who doesn't want that, right? When I was rereading this section of your article about Richie Rich, I I was thinking about the gif, I don't know if you saw, of Bernie and Tom Steyer on stage together at that Martin Luther King Day celebration in South Carolina and Bernie Tom Steyer is just like really hyped to be around Bernie and Bernie literally like (laughs) swipes his glove at him to try to get him away from him like I think he's viscerally repelled by being in the presence of billionaires like despite having been in DC on Capitol Hill for all this time he's still like actually in his gut hates billionaires and does not want to be nice to them and doesn't want to be friends with them and uh maybe i'm reading the tea leaves too much in here but imagining that kind of energy like he clearly that goes he he doesn't want to talk shit about all these people like tom steyer who in the 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 uh, primary with him but he's just like can't help but like swat his glove (laughs) at tom steyer imagine when it's when it's gloves off and it's against trump i mean it, it would be amazing it would make for some very entertaining television and certainly better than what i imagine would happen with joe biden my god like biden would you know try to he would try to come up with some anecdote about how he's gonna take trump behind the woodshed and you know we, we don't even have woodsheds anymore you know we used to have woodsheds and we're gonna bring them back and you know it just it would, it would just be a nightmare and trump would wipe the floor with him but if trump were up against bernie he would get his clock absolutely clean by him. absolutely i mean i can't i cannot wait i mean i really obviously hope bernie wins the nomination for a variety of other reasons that are more substantive than my personal entertainment um but a debate between 
Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump is one thing that I really hope to see in my lifetime. And because it would be phenomenal and Bernie would kick Trump's ass and nobody else would really kick Trump's. Trump's too mean. He's really mean and he goes for the jugular. He hits below the belt. All of this stuff about, you know, Democrats are constantly scolding each other these days for like criticizing each other in a primary, like as though a primary isn't a contest. It's supposed to be an exercise in like team unity or something, even though like (laughs) literally only one person can win. Right. And also primaries are supposed to be opportunities for us to like air dirty laundry and talk about like who has major liabilities going into a general election. And now there's this weird norm where you like can't actually talk about what's wrong with anybody. Right. So Trump's sitting there and he's got this, you know, huge arsenal of things that he's planning to unleash on every single candidate besides Bernie Sanders, of course. And um, we're not allowed to have a conversation about them beforehand. Right. Elizabeth Warren gets up there. It's Pocahontas. If Joe Biden gets up there, he's corrupt and he's also like senile. Right. It's, a very strange situation that we're in now, which is that the Democrats, in order to respond to insurgent attacks from the left uh, up and down the ballot, have basically instituted a sort of like gag rule on criticizing other Democrats as though it's a sort of like violation of a pact to like be be nice and, uh, you know, keep the unity of the party intact, right? Um, And the problem with this is that some of the serious major flaws with some of the other candidates don't get an opportunity to see any airtime before the general election. But make no mistake, Donald Trump is planning on going for the jugular. He will attempt to eviscerate anybody that he is debating, and not just politically, but he'll also mock them and belittle them personally. And I think that Bernie Sanders is not only the most morally righteous, uh, the most consistent, uh, candidate, but I also think that he's got kind of an attitude. And I think that he would, you know, kind of be a wise ass with Donald Trump in a way that would actually backfire on Trump. And I would look, I really look forward to seeing that. So I really hope it happens. Yeah. I mean, in addition to all the political reasons to see Bernie, to want to see Bernie win, that one about what those debates would look like and how we would finally see mask off Bernie which we have not seen, including in 2016, we didn't get to see it. But uh, 2020, the year when Bernie takes the gloves off. Let's hope for it. Thanks for coming on, Megan. My pleasure. You can listen to other episodes of The Vast Majority, as well as our other Jacobin podcasts at Jacobin Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please do rate and review us, as that really makes a difference in people finding us. And we don't ask you for any money on this show, but it's definitely not free. So please subscribe to Jacobin at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. Buy Jacobin swag at our online store. Subscribe to our journal Catalyst or do whatever else that involves giving us money. Please and thank you.